Welcome to Tesseract Podcast, where we unlock your power to innovate. Hi, my name is Matt, and I'm going to be your host today. Tesseract's mission is to empower airmen, connect them to resources, and accelerate change across the Air Force logistics enterprise. Specifically, our team works as an innovation accelerator assigned to the Air Staff Logistics Directorate, where we partner with airmen to operationalize the new sustainment strategy. SEAC. Thank you so much for coming on Test Rack Podcast today. We really appreciate you. And I mean, this all started with a LinkedIn message. And I just want to double down on when you say you'll reach out in two minutes or two days. That's a legitimate promise. <laughs> so I can speak from personal experience. So I, I really appreciate your time today. Yeah. And uh, we definitely do not want any request to go and answer, especially at the speed of information nowadays. We, we need to be highly responsive when our people ask for something. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah, definitely. Um, it, I think this is a unique um, space that we're in now because you see uh, SimSaf, Bass, all over social media, responding in comments, being interactive with the force and, and meeting airmen where they're at, which is also another reason why we do Tesseract Podcast. Um, specifically because we are we are meeting airmen in the middle uh, or where they are at with uh, in social media and podcast, um, you know, making it an inviting website. And and, and I know that uh, you've experimented with that with your bottom line up front podcast and um, also want to give uh, Moments in Leadership a, a shout out as well um, with uh, the host David Armstrong as a former Marine. Uh, so it's uh, uh, it's great and it's an honor uh, to have you on, sir. Oh, the honor's all mine, and I really appreciate the opportunity to be here with you guys today. Uh, so, uh, thank you. Uh, for our listeners, uh, I mean, you're uh, you're a legend. I mean, you're a living legend. <laughs> I, don't, I, don't, I don't know about that. <laughs> I mean, so, I was on TDY. Uh, I was on TDY at, at Wright Pat, and I went to the Air Force Museum, and I was walking around the corner, and I, I saw your your uh, your setup, and I was like, oh. Ziac's still in. Like, I mean, don't, don't put him in a museum. <laughs> uh, and I was also studying for staff and, 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 and your, uh, I mean, your stories are, are there um, in Air Force Handbook One, uh, which I find absolutely um, incredible. Um, and, uh, and on my other reading that I do as well, um, you know, I've come across your name. Um, do you want to... Uh, tell our audience about yourself, the, the human side of, of SEAC, Colon Lopez. <laughs> well, you know, I will tell you the first thing is that the one common thing throughout my 32 years of service is just seizing opportunity. And what I mean by that is, you know, just walking the rounds back into the chamber of the gun. I grew up poor in Puerto Rico. My family had to leave everything behind just to seek better opportunities, so we moved to New York and then Connecticut. Shortly after that, I was living in a ghetto in Bridgeport, Connecticut, and I was looking for a way out, and that is why I enlisted in military service. I needed discipline and I needed structure. It didn't start out like that. I tested the waters and I almost came up on the losing end with an Article 15 and almost getting kicked out of service. At some point, somebody saw a mismatch between my duties as a TMO troop, TMO airman, traffic management office, and they offered the opportunity to become a pararescueman, and I didn't know anything about it. 
So put my metal to the test, ended up completing the two-year pipeline, and everything after that was just a bonus. You know, all I wanted to do was to be a chief, be in for 30 years, and finish my career as a pararescueman. But we all know that life eventually will throw you some uh, monkey wrenches in the way. <laughs> and when I was approached to become a command chief, uh, I was a brand new chief at the Joint Special Operations Command, which is where I spent the majority of my career, almost a decade to be exact, in the tier one units. I didn't want to do it. I didn't want to be a command chief. And I saw a mission more important than administrative stuff, just like virtually every other knuckle dragger that is out there. And it was Chief Roy that ended up having a very rational conversation with me. And he stated that he had some gaps that needed to be filled by joint-minded airmen. And this is the beginning of, 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 uh, of us, the Air Force tipping the scales into being joint-minded. And I decided to, uh, to take the challenge. And one of the best decisions that I made, you know, and the lesson that I learned there is that sometimes the things that we need in our lives are not necessarily the things that we're looking for or the things that we want. Because I didn't know. I was totally oblivious to the impact that I could make. Um, dedicated my career as a command chief to helping people, but there was a common trend there throughout my history as an airman. In TMO, it was all about helping people, you know, helping people move, making sure that they had uh, their stuff, that their life was able to continue with the, with the multiple assignments that every member has to uh, take on during their tenure in service. Then as a pararescueman, it was that others may live. I mean, you basically lay it on the line to give somebody a second opportunity of life. And then as a command chief, both of those mentalities really converge and combine into helping a lot of people. And so as long as I... As long as I was helping people, really, it was it was a happy place for me. So that's why I say that everything after after pararescue has been a, a great bonus. But I was serving prior to becoming the SEAC as the senior enlisted leader at, at United States Africa Command, and I thought I was going to retire from there. And there's another opportunity, you know. General Milley calls, I get an interview, and then get selected. So here we are today. Almost 32 years to the day, so, but I'm glad to be here. That's amazing. Um, a lot of your story, your life story resonates with me. I'm actually a first-generation American. I'm Cuban, mm -hmm. um, so uh, I, uh, you know, learned a, you know, a lot of lessons from, from my family of, of overcoming that, you know, adversity, you know, you know, coming to the United States. Um, and your story of, and I was going to touch on this a little bit later, but, you know, your your story of failure and overcoming failure um you know with your article 15 and and uh, then bouncing back and just ha just blossoming into such a phenomenal career um i had i had a similar setback um when i was younger um i was on a trajectory to be a marine corps officer i got in trouble uh with alcohol and and i couldn't commission right before i was supposed to put on my bars and to your point of wanting things that you don't realize that why you want them and your goals in life and, and what your true purpose is. And then 
bouncing back from that and, and evolving your career into something that you never thought could have existed is is part of your story that that inspires me uh, to to be a better airman, a better human being. Uh, so, um, uh, sky's the limit, right? And and I appreciate the example that you set uh, for the entire joint force. So, um, thank you for that. Well, I'm I'm a true believer that limits are often self-imposed. You know, there are blocks in our minds that eventually prevent us from really taking a chance on ourselves. So I gave that up a long, long time ago. I I was always, since I was a teenager, always wanted to be in the arena, wanted to test, test things out. I didn't take no from people that didn't have the right to tell me no. Uh, I didn't take no from people that didn't have the experience or they haven't tried what I was about to try to do. And man, when you take that approach to life, good things happen and whether it's good or bad it's really up to you how do you decide to process it but to me the way that i have processed everything in my in my life you know both as a as a warrior and as a man it's been that hey it's a lesson learned and i can either validate discard or or help other people to not make those mistakes or to set themselves up for success Mm -hmm. Yeah, absolutely. And let's take a look at, at your current role you know, mm-hmm. as the SEAC. Unique job, only joint rank in the Department of Defense. Uh, you're responsible for, for so much. Um, we all know what the SIMSAF does and the guidance and, and the leadership that, that she provides to the Air Force, but some of our listeners might not know you know, what, what you do. Uh, can you glean some insight how you are um, uh, bringing all that goodness that you've learned throughout your career in life uh, to the joint force. So for anyone who's seen the movie Office Space, I feel like I'm standing in front of the two Bobs right now. What is it that you really do? No, but Where's my staple? <laughs> I know. Well, I said, yeah, the red swing line is right back there. But, you know, this is uh, the position is fairly new. It was created in 2005, uh, General Myers, Air Force. He was the joint, uh, the chairman of the Joint Chiefs at the time. He started the process and General Peter Pace, United States Marine Corps, was the first one to implement the position with Command Sergeant Major Joe Ganey as the first SEAC. But upon implementation of the position, because the joint staff does not have any Title X authorities, the question has always been lingering. What is it that this entity, what is it that they are going to do that the services are not already doing? Well, the answer comes down to three words, and that is to be a sensor, a synchronizer, and an integrator for the Department of Defense. And what I mean by that is that there's a lot of key decision meetings that happen in this building, specifically on the third deck of the Pentagon, OSD, to where there's seldom enlisted representation. And the reason we have this crew here that is fairly young is because the officers sometimes miss a lot of things that are the ground truth that is really happening in the trenches. And that's where you guys come in to go ahead and say, hey, that policy may not really work because of X, Y, and Z, right? Well, the same applies for the the enlisted force. And what I often find myself doing is collecting the input from those Title X authorities, meaning all of the services and the National Guard Bureau, 
to make sure that we have a collective voice when it comes to any issue that pertains to the total force, your health and welfare, your pay and compensation, anything that has to do with accessions, with recruitment, anything that has to do with total force readiness and joint integration is my responsibility. Now, my responsibility is enabled by the information that the services provide us to make sure that we maintain uh, the sanctity of the cultures of each service when we're making decisions. Because the last thing that we want is for soldiers to quit being soldiers, for Marines to quit being Marines, for airmen to quit being airmen, and so on. We want to make sure that we have those differences in opinion and different approaches to any particular issue because when you put all of those entities, all of those heads together, that's when you get the best decisions because you leave no rock unturned. So in essence, that is what I do. So I'm the collective voice for the Department of Defense on all issues that pertain to the total force. You touched on something with that diversity of thought, right? When we're, when we're talking about the, the joint force and all the different ideas and the different biases that we have in our centralized domains, right? Where, you know, we as airmen might focus on the, the air domain, right? We'll use a pararescue man. It might, it might be a little different. Uh, you're looking at it from that, that special operations perspective, uh, which is also extremely valuable. But then you have Marines that might think of the ground domain. Well, they say, you know, sea, land, air, but uh, the Army's thinking of the land, the Navy's thinking of the sea. Uh, and we all have our priorities. We all have um, the lines in the budget that we're trying to defend. We all have the experiences that, that have been inculcated in us. Um, but how are, how are we tying that together and becoming a truly joint-minded force? Um, and are there uh, any initiatives um, that are from a... Uh, professional military education standpoint um, that that we're getting after um, to to build that that like mindedness. Yeah. So from the from the standpoint of the chairman of the Joint Chiefs, he's named the global integrator for the total force. And what he does is so the Joint Chiefs wear two hats. They have their service hat and then they have their Joint Chiefs hat. So when they're acting upon the roles and responsibilities of the Joint Chiefs. I'm really their senior enlisted advisor. When they're having their service hat, then they have Chief Master Sergeant of the Air Force, Joe Bass, and so on, right? But we know for a fact, especially after 20 years of combat operations in Afghanistan, that the fight of the future is not going to be unilateral. It's going to take a joint team to be able to do that. It's going to take a hybrid team at times with other government agencies to be able to go ahead and affect the 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 change or the power that you need to go ahead and impose on the enemies so keeping that in mind there's conversations that take place here in this building almost weekly when it comes to how to best do that how to take the parochialism from the services out of the conversation and not have a food fight for resources like you mentioned with the budgets and the priorities and so on and what is it that we need if we were to go ahead and kick somebody's ass right now what is required to go ahead and get that ass kicking formalized? And every service brings forward their capabilities. 
then the chairman says, okay, so we got this. Can we do away with this? If we were to have a subsequent fight, how do we reset for that? And those conversations, again, enable us to have rational processes and the right posture and readiness to make sure that we're able to do what the nation is asking us to do, which is to protect them. Um, when it comes to the education piece of your question, since I have been the SEAC now for three years, one of my lines of effort was to revamp the joint professional education of the enlisted force. So we needed to stray away from the counterinsurgency model that we were using for Keystone. Keystone is the pinnacle of enlisted education. So mostly nominative level senior enlisted leaders get to go to that, which identified a gap for some of our senior enlisted leaders. We realized that not every service has got opportunities for their soldiers, sailors, airmen, Marines, guardians, and even Coast Guardsmen to have joint experience. Often to the point of being an E-9 interview for some kind of position. So we decided to create a course for E-7s right when you cross the threshold of being an NCO into the senior NCO ranks to make sure that we provided you with an overview of how is it that the government makes the laws and apportions funds to make sure that every service is able to go ahead and fill their combat capabilities on manning and, and, uh, and assets. And how is it that we employ those capabilities together when it comes to the execution of the mission by the combatant commands? So we have that course going right now, it's called Gateway. And there's an in-residence and an online version of it. The online version, as a matter of fact, I, I believe just finished, just concluded the first uh, session here not long ago. But we're getting ready to have the second uh, iteration of the in-residence here in the middle of this month. So now we're arming people earlier in their careers to have a joint understanding because that's really what we ask of the total force when it comes to joint mindedness. It is understanding. It's never about becoming. Because what I value about every single one of you the most is that you're an airman and that you think different than a Marine does. You think different than that soldier that is sitting right there across from you from the table. And you will question each other and you will learn and you come up with better decisions because the gaps are naturally covered, right? So that's the reason we decided to go ahead and create Gateway at the E7 timeframe because we wanted the services to have from E1 to E6 to make sure that the culture was understood, that your trade was mastered, that you knew how to be a good NCO in your service before we start injecting purple in you. So we're making great strides. This is going to be a very evolving process to make sure that we're keeping up with the times based on the speed of uh, of information and also this, the speed of change when it comes to what our adversaries are willing to do to go ahead and flex their capabilities to be able to better compete with us. So we're full on stride when it comes to that. And I think that our, our enlisted service members are going to be better served by the way that we're doing that. Mm-hmm. So I recently went to Airman Leadership School uh, over here at Joint Base Andrews. Mm -hmm. Had a fantastic experience uh, with uh, Technical Sergeant Ivan Abreu as my instructor. Awesome, awesome, awesome experience. Uh, shout out to Avenger Flight, best flight. Sorry, got to do it. Um, and um, also another small vignette. Uh, 
so senior airman uh, Caleb Adams, uh, an honor guardsman, uh, he he would tell me, uh, you know, stories about meeting you, right, um, and how you would always be outside, you know, with your cup of coffee, uh, you know, just uh, saying hello to, you know, to everyone, right, and and not just doing it to go through the motions, but doing it because uh, you genuinely, uh, you know, genuinely care about the the people around you. So I just wanted to uh, give a little shout out there. Um, but uh, back to to ALS. When I was when I was going through ALS, I loved the instruction, right? And but but I was sitting there thinking, man, I I think everyone in this room was capable to learn some of these lessons earlier in their career, right? You know, as as a, a senior A one C or even a younger senior airman, you know, without needing that that next stripe, and in preparing, you know, airmen earlier um you know as you were saying with with the uh, you know with gate you know the gateway program and, mm-hmm. and, and getting uh, getting airmen prepared or you know for the you know for the joint force um i, I think that is uh, something that like we have the most educated and probably highest average age of of enlisted members in a long time right like i came into the service with a bachelor's degree um, I know a lot of other people I, I went through uh, BMT with uh, also did as well. What are your thoughts on introducing education for the junior enlisted um, a little sooner as well? Well, I never like to use the words lowest common denominator, but that is something that is often used out there to create the baseline of what people get at Urban Leadership School, the NCO Academy, and so on, right? I believe that we need to concentrate on the basics and making sure that we're mastering the basics before we start getting too high into the operational and strategic context of our purpose as warfighters. There's nothing that is preventing anyone right now, regardless of rank, to pick up a book and self-learn. That is how I learned the majority of my career. If I were to sit here and tell you that everything that I know today was because of ALS, NCOA, and senior NCOA, I'll be lying directly to your face. It was just the experiential learning and the things that were relevant to my duty and my task that helped me become a better leader. So my advice to anyone listening is do not wait for the institution to spoon feed you the education that you think you need. You have the power to read. You have the power to ask. You have the power to call, to reach out to someone. And you can be learning every day. The curriculum that we have for Gateway is open for anybody to take a look at, all right? But you don't have to wait to get a golden ticket like Willy Wonka to be able to be, <laughs> you know, welcome into the, into the party. You can start learning right now. And if you have the capacity to do that, then by all means. But what we don't want to do is to go ahead and impose more stuff on people that are already struggling with the basics. So the first thing that we need to do in order to become experts at anything is to master the basics. And that is the way that our uh, service PME is designed to go ahead and educate our force. Mm-hmm. No, I, I love that. Uh, any, anyone who's been following this podcast knows I'm a pretty big reader. Um, and I met with uh, retired uh, Lieutenant General Mike Dana uh, recently, and, and we're both book nerds, right? <laughs> and we were, we were talking about that, you know, uh, read till you bleed, um, and and invest in your own education through you know, Audible, hard copy books, Kindle, YouTube. Um, there, there's so many different ways to to learn, 
mm-hmm. and it's not just through a formal education. So, so I'm glad that uh, that you brought that up because I think it's uh, it's an important habit and lesson to learn. And, and also, from a joint perspective, General Mattis has famously said, if um, if you're not a reader, or if you haven't read thousands of books, like you're you're functionally illiterate, um, which I, I found is a very strong, powerful statement, but also very true. Like you don't want to be the sum of your own experiences. Um, uh, and there's uh, there, there's a great book um, called uh, The Passion of Command uh, by uh, Colonel McCoy. And he has a, a quote that he heard from General Van Riper said, there's 5,000 years of military history. There's no reason to stop learning because there's so much out there. Um, and, and, and now in the information space, I mean, Mm-hmm. There's there's things everywhere to um, to learn from it and, and glean from. So uh, I appreciate you sharing that. Um, to to tie it back to to innovation for a minute, we have uh, so the Department of Defense has a few pretty uh, large scale innovation efforts going on. Of course, you're familiar with Accelerate Change or Lose with um, you know with the Air Force and and uh, General Brown's intent, also Force Design 2030. Uh, General Berger's focus on on preparing the the Marine Corps structurally um, and culturally for you know for a future fight. Uh, what have you seen out in the Joint Force that's inspired you uh, from an innovation perspective as we continue to to change and evolve to be better equipped for strategic competition? Something that I always said that officers need to do when they're in command for their force, the people that they have a responsibility for is that they need to do two things. Give them access to information and empower them to act. I'm seeing a lot more of that here as of recent, especially after we had a force that was very well versed in combat by multiple deployments in the Middle East and how they have started to go ahead and look to see what is relevant and what is it that they need to change as they move on to the future for strategic power competition. Um, I think that the transparency that that method has created is empowering a lot more people to be uh, very uh, vocal about the changes that they want to see. I think that people are having more courage right now to go ahead and put ideas on the table and not think that the old guy is going to tell them, shut up, that's dumb. And I believe that people are seeing the results a lot faster when they do have something that makes sense happen. And I think that that is one of the biggest changes that I have seen in my three decades in service. That our force is heard more often and they are more empowered. Now, there are going to be a few pockets out there to where somebody's going to come and say, well, not where I live. And my question to you then is, number one, who are you in the, in the organization and what are you doing to change it? because that is part of the problem. Some people clam up, shut up, and just take it. And then the only thing that they do is bitch, moan, and complain and not have a solution on the table. Every single one of us here, regardless of rank, has got an opportunity to go ahead and be the change that they want to see. As long as they bring it up and they remain diligent when it comes to the implementation of that change. And and I know there, there's such a, well, the, it's almost a paradox, right? Like we, we expect, uh, or a dichotomy, Maybe I'm messing up my words here, <laughs> mm-hmm. um, but you know we we expect airmen to challenge the status quo, um, while also uh, respecting the continuity 
in the chain of command in the hierarchy and the systems in place that that have proven to work right uh and then and then playing around in the middle there um and i know something that that you've talked about and you're passionate about you know is is the oath of enlistment right and and uh and, and honoring that staying true to that and remembering or and, and as it being important for for us as you know particularly as the, as the enlisted force um, to to reflect on on the oath of enlistment because it's not just something that that you do at MEPS it's not just something that you do at graduation of of basic military training it's something that we live every single day um, can you tell us your thoughts on that well so let's let's start with a with a little group exercise here let's uh, how many of you can recite the oath verbatim right now. I'm seeing a lot of east to west head shakes over here. Here's the problem. If I were to ask you the following question, the answer is very likely to be yes. And that question is, can you sing your favorite song right now? Now we have north to south nods in there. See, you talked about dichotomies. You know, um, I said there's a difference in priorities here right now. A lot of people nowadays, because of the abundance of information, you know, the quick headlines, the five second sound bites, everybody seems to be an expert about nothing. Everybody thinks they know so much that, that they don't know anything about anything. And whenever people start talking about my rights as an American, my constitutional right, rights, my first amendment rights and so on, I always go back, it's like, all right, so are you aware of the sacrifices and I'm hoping you are the sacrifices that you swore that you will do in order to don this uniform, because this isn't a jobs program. This is a call to duty and a call to action, action being the expectation. And nine out of 10 people cannot recite the oath of enlistment. So let's let's go ahead and dissect that line by line. So I state your name, right? Fill in the blank to solemnly swear. And what's the next line that I will support and defend the Constitution of the United States. Help me out against it, all, all enemies, enemies foreign, foreign and domestic, domestic. and yeah. that I will bear true faith and allegiance to the same, and that I will obey the orders of the President of the United States and all officers appointed over me. And the officers in accordance with regulations and the Uniform Code of Military Justice. So help me God or whatever you choose to believe in, right? When you start dissecting those words, it is a very powerful promise, uncompromising promise that you made to the American people by accepting pay and compensation, by having the honor to wear this uniform, and by serving them. Because the Constitution is all about, you can see it right there, it's right on the wall. The big words up the top is, we the people. All right. So I will encourage everyone listening officer or enlisted, junior or senior, to where if you don't have the words memorized to that oath and you're not putting it into context of what it means to you, you're selling yourself short and you're selling the nation short. Once you believe and you understand what that oath means to you, you will cease to have the notion that orders are suggestions, that you can go against lawful orders, that you have the ability to protest certain things. Because in combat, there's no time for protest. There's no time for debate. 
Sometimes you have to do things that you disagree with, and then you after action it, and then you learn from it. But the action at the moment is a requirement to go ahead and best an opponent at any given time. If we start getting into the habit to think that we can question everything because there may be a loophole, then maybe the military is not the place for you. And I will highly encourage and expedite your exit from the Department of Defense because we need people that are able to go ahead and react, that are obedient to the rule of law, and that believe on that oath word by word, line by line, every day, every second, not the other way around. So that is how I feel about the oath of enlistment. That was a humbling segment there. Um, I, when, Whenever I put on this uniform, uh, I try to, to remember the, the sacrifices of those before us, right? Because this is a symbol of, of freedom. It's a symbol of, of you know, the preservation of, of democracy and everything that's right in the world. Um, and, and I'm in a, in a family of, of veterans as well that have served to give back to this nation that has given us so much. And, and uh, but that, was, that was fantastic. Um, you, you talked about... Uh, alluding to, to being on the X and making hard decisions and, and pushing forward and, 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 and you obviously have extensive experience, you know, in combat. Um, the future fight is going to be, uh, it, it's not just going to be, you know, small pockets of, of infantry and, and, and special operators. I mean, even airmen across the A4, whether it's maintenance, logistics, civil engineering, force protection, um, are gonna have to to face those realities, those harsh realities. Um, and and I reflect as a as a young airman, are my peers, are my leaders, uh, are the young airmen coming through the door ready to to step on the X uh, to make decentralized decisions um, to be in in a information saturated environment one second and the next second having no information at all um and and staying true to um you know pushing forward doing the right thing having grit determination uh, and maintaining their their humility and, and serving um you know side by side next to their airmen or in the joint force period right because uh, we're going to be integrated and um what's your message to airmen that are thinking about the future fight and what it might entail with things like agile combat employment um, as they put their boots on the ground to, to think about as they're leading the airmen next to them? Well, I will say that the only constant in the future of warfare is going to be ambiguity. We're going to have to operate in a very uncertain environment. Conventional war warfare by all intents and purposes is dead. If we're thinking that we're gonna go uniform to uniform, flag against flag, tank versus tank, ship versus ship, we're grossly mistaken. It's gonna be a hybrid approach to the way that we do things. And we spoke about that earlier a little bit. But when as a doc, uh, Dr. Mara Carlin was drafting the National Defense Strategy, I had a conversation with her in her office and we we're talking about how can this document, meaning the National Defense Strategy or the NDS, 
How can this be operationalized at the NCO level? And in our conversation, I, I explained to her that we need to balance three grades. And she's like, what do you mean by that, Cece? I was like, well, the three grades are grade number one, the gray environment that we are expected to operate on. And we talked about the hybrid nature of warfare and the decisions, the actions that need to take place in order to go ahead and uh, remain competitive. The second gray was the core of the national defense strategy, which is integrated deterrence. Now, integrated deterrence is almost synonymous with the gray steel. You know, the gray steel, meaning the ships, the the boats, the missiles, all all of the things that the enemy sees that keeps them at bay when it comes to getting into a toe-to-toe fight with the United States of America. And then the last gray, which was the most important, was the gray matter, the people. How is it that we're treating the human weapon system to be best suited to go ahead and, number one, think beyond the capabilities of our technology and make the decisions that only humans can make? and be able to perform at a level that can withstand any type of contingency that the enemy can throw at us. And this is in the middle of COVID, by the way, which, you know, the reason the United States Department of Defense was so successful and was able to maintain full readiness during that time is because of our health and wellness. All right. So anybody out there that is skeptical about a PT test and your, you know, your quality checks and everything else, think again to that time to where the nation was struggling with disease and you were still thriving, pushing forward with minimal to no side effects. All right. So when we start looking at the balance between those three grades, it is very important for us to be able to go ahead and self-educate, like I mentioned earlier. It is also important for leaders at, at all levels, regardless of organi- organization, whether it's combat support, logistics, medical, you know, any of the other, you know, um, tasks that we have, like, you know, law, uh, law enforcement, and so on, we need to make sure that everybody's thinking about every potential scenario that they may be exposed to. And they need to go ahead and war game it. You know, they need to be able to go ahead and push forward any changes that they need to their policy. They need to identify some of those frozen middles that we encounter because of the way that we have always done things. Because that is as relevant as it can be now and forever. Because change is going to be fast, ambiguity is always going to be there, and the environment is going to continue to challenge us to be able to go ahead and flex at a moment's notice. And the last thing that I say on that is that this is not something that is new because of strategic uh, power competition. And I'll take you back to late 2001 during the invasion of Afghanistan to where we had small teams coming in from the north and some of them never seen a horse in their life. Some of them were expecting to see people in uniform. And then when they finally got into Afghanistan and they partnered up with their indigenous forces, they realized that we were the only ones playing by Geneva Conventions. So they had to adjust at a moment's notice. They had to learn to ride horses. They had to learn how to fight from horses and then keep that going, you know, month after month in a prolonged war that ended up lasting 20 years. So we learned a lot about counterinsurgency by actually, you know, building the plane as we're flying it, like we like to say in the Air Force, right? But it it is in our DNA. That's what we need to do. But the biggest detriment to that mentality is leadership telling you, no, you cannot do that. So we need to continue to accelerate 
or, or lose, that is exactly what it means. We need to make sure that we take everybody's input and that we actually the things that make sense and discard the ones that don't. But just because we tried it and we found a way to say, ah, that's not a good idea. That last bit, do you have an example of how you overcame a policy, how you overcame uh, uh, friction from, uh, let's say, a senior officer or a peer that you you stood for, you believe what was right, like the right thing to do, um, and overcame those you know, CSAP's famous five stages of no. Well, I think the perfect example and something that we're dealing with right now is recruiting and accessions. Because we're taking a close look at the way that we administer the ASVAB as an example, because we are still doing that the way that we have always done it, which is not the way that you went through school nowadays and how you took your tests and everything else. So it's an outdated system in a highly technological and intellectual population that is coming in because airmen right now in the United States Air Force are smarter than any single one of us were coming in. You have more degrees than a damn thermometer coming in sometimes, you know. But we need to make sure that we cater, you know, to the to the to the individual and not keep legacy systems that are irrelevant. The second part to recruiting and accessions was the mentality of certain medications that used to be almost very exclusive back then. I'll tell you that if they had Ritalin when I was a child, I probably would have been put on it instead of getting <laughs> ass whoopings every day. That was my Ritalin coming up. But because I didn't have that particular medical input in my records, um, I was able to come in. But if I had that particular medication, I would have been delayed coming in. It doesn't make sense anymore because a lot of these medications and the advances in, in our medical community are more and more common to where we're really negating a big segment of our society an opportunity to serve. You know, And I have had people close to me that were not eligible for serving because certain things that they took when they were seven years old. I, I, that's ridiculous. So we've been fighting very hard and Secretary Esper was our biggest advocate when it came to us getting rid of a lot of these legacy things that do not make sense anymore. Uh, spouse clubs is another perfect example of that to where we still live in, in the 50s with the Stepford Wives Clubs out there. And there's this big divide between officer spouses and enlisted spouses. Guess, guess what? Spouses have no damn rank. So why the division? Why are enlisted spouses marginalized because of the rank of the service member whom they're married to? That is not fair. A lot of them have a lot of experience. A lot of them have a lot of things to bring to the table. And a lot of them are connected to the majority, to the 80th percentile of the organization. So we shouldn't be closing doors because of legacy systems. And those are just a few examples when it comes to our society when it comes to how we bring people in and how we interact with each other once we're serving. But those are just a few, and there's probably about a thousand others that I can tell you in my three years over here, but uh, we'll go ahead and leave those alone for now. <laughs> uh, so a lot of things you've kind of alluded to throughout uh, our conversation is uh, you know, providing your perspective in your mentorship. and to make better decisions as an organization, regardless of the size, whether it's your team, your squad, your uh, your squadron, or, and now the entire joint force. 
what's your tip to NCOs to to mentor uh, uh, their junior officers, their even their senior officers as they they go through the ranks and uh, to help um, guide their decision making and, and their professional development as well. One of the biggest detriments to progress is the dissection of issues that you're not responsible for. And what do I mean by that? Take the early bird as an example. So for those who don't know, the early bird is a publication that comes out every morning with the top headlines, everything that happens. What you get to see based on the information that gets put in there, and you can go to Reddit, you can go to uh, certain Facebook pages and everything else, you know, where people go to basically offload the, the, the thoughts that they have at any given time, they spend quite a bit of time, you know, worrying and discussing things that they have no control over. When they have a lot of control at the immediate organization where they're in charge of their people. I've got accustomed to not worry about the things that I cannot control and always bringing the team back on focus and on point to be able to do the task that we can do right now. I also do not delegate those things that I need to take care of. If, if it's within my responsibility to go ahead and be the face of it, I do not delegate that. But if it's something that my team can do and can carry the intellectual water for me and the Department of Defense, then by all means, that is, on, that is a, an expansion of the control of responsibilities and also an opportunity for growth for them if they're junior to you. So the best advice that I can give people is don't worry about the things that you cannot control because I guarantee you 100% that Joe Bass is looking at those big Air Force issues right now. You can always provide input on how to improve them, but don't spend freaking an hour of the day just complaining about things. You know, if you have the solution, then just bring it forward, you know, and we have a chain of command for a reason because I realized that not everybody's going to have a great relationship with their immediate supervision. I mean, we, we see that all across the force, but above that person that you're at odds with, there's somebody responsible for them. And somebody's always responsible for somebody else, all the way up to the president. Somebody always has to answer to somebody, you know. And the reason we have that mechanism in the Department of Defense is because we realize that the human dynamic is never going to go away. And sometimes we may not get along. We may not agree. We may not be able to communicate with somebody that is directly in charge of us. But we cannot say, I don't want them to be my supervisor anymore because that's not up for debate, right? Unless they do something and they get fired, then guess what? You're stuck with that person. Sometimes temporarily, sometimes for an entire assignment. But if you start taking care of the things that you have directly control on, your life is going to be a lot easier. Keep in mind the things that you can. Just be smart to be able to go ahead and put things into context for your people. But do not waste time trying to fix things that you have no responsibility for. Yeah, SimSaf has been given given you her Ryan Holiday books on stoicism, it sounds like. <laughs> yeah, no, no, it's, a, it's a great perspective to keep and, and uh, that, that's amazing guidance and, and, and mentorship. Um, as we wrap up here, uh, what are your final thoughts? Anything that, that you wanted to share that's come up uh, at the top of your mind now? Well, a lot of people talk often about generational differences. You know, are they better than us? You know, are they lazy? They just don't get it and everything else. But I guarantee you that the chief and I, when we were growing up, somebody told us, you know, back in my day, you know, 
And then you listen because you're like, all right, we're listening from a standpoint of I'm new, you have experience, right? But it didn't take long to figure out who was just providing lip service and who actually had some good, you know, factual experience to go ahead and bring forward. The inquisitive nature of the new generations is based on the information that you're accustomed to. Because back in the day, if we needed an answer, we needed to go to some place, a library, you know, the military personnel flight, and we needed to make photocopies and everything else. And humans are inherently lazy when it comes to that practice. So for us, instead of walking all the way across the base to find a piece of information and then come back and figure out that that wasn't, and then we had to go back to get another one, we'll just say, all right, if the sergeant said it, then it must be true. Because we didn't <laughs> want to go and make the trips, right? But the luxury that you have right now is that you have information at your fingertips, which basically creates a lot of questions, you know, because some things are just not going to make sense. You are able to research it. Wait, what about this? And then the other entity is going to have to go ahead and do the research to go ahead and counter that. But that is, that is just common interaction amongst humans right now. And what I will caution to the new generation is don't get accustomed as you grow as a leader to internet don't get accustomed to sending emails to providing uh, uh, text messages TikToks, whatever it is that you do to well this is the way that they communicate right now because one of the most valuable things that we have as human beings in this world is the flesh and bone interaction of two people looking each other in the eye like we are right now and either agreeing or disagreeing a lot of the megabyte muscles go out the door because a lot of people are very courageous behind the keyboard. But when you talk to them face to face, the dynamics change because they see the other person on the other side. And if you meet somebody, whether it's your enemy or not, and you share a cup of coffee, it's really hard for you to go back and sling mud on them because now you see the effect that you're having on that particular person. We have to be better at that. People are quick to insults. They're confusing insults with criticism. Criticism is good. A little bit of criticism actually helps us to go ahead and cover our blind spots. But insults, those are fighting words. And we don't need that. People do it online. People do it without uh, factual information. It almost becomes like the norm. If I want to go ahead and get my likes online, I have to be a total prick to the other party. And that shouldn't be the case. Take the high road. Be factual. Be humble. Take the time to get to the ground truth of the topic, and you'll see what happens. That is how you earn credibility. That is how you earn a following because you earn a following. You don't, you don't demand it. And that is how you become an effective leader. It's all about growth. It's all about understanding. It's all about you know curbing your bias. And it's all about making sure that your people are set up for success. Because right now I'm looking at every single one of you, and I realize that this is your force because next year I'm out. September timeframe, I will be retired, and then it's going to be you taking care of these issues, whether it's communicating, leading troops, and eventually growing up. Hell, the SEAC may be sitting right here right now. We just don't know it. But it's all about the effort that you put into it. Nothing is sold to you. You earn your keep every day. And if you do that, and if you remain humble, you will go anywhere that you want to go. Awesome. Uh, I want to run through a brick wall right now. Um, <laughs> um, so let's uh, let's wrap up here really quick with uh, you want to do a little lightning round of questions? Sure. It's like uh, just some fun questions. 
who's your favorite Avenger? And I don't have an Avenger. Uh, is Captain America one of them? Yeah. All right, so I'll, I'll take Captain America for 500, Alex. Oh. <laughs> uh, what's your favorite book or your most recommended book? Leadership Secrets of the Tale of the Hunt by Dr. Wes Roberts. Awesome. Uh, only only second to the Constitution in the United States of America. Which you have sitting on your desk here. That's right. Yeah, I love that. Um, where's your favorite place to vacation to? Hawaii. Were you ever stationed there? My wife was. She lived there for several years, and we have a lot of local friends, and uh, we just love the vibe, man. I'm an island boy. Before them, two jackasses on TikTok ended up there. I'm the real island boy. So um, we just love being out there. We love the culture. We love the food, and uh, it's, it's just a, a very calming place for us. Uh, what's your, what are your goals in retirement? Do nothing. Yeah. <laughs> no. You know, joking on that one, but I, I think I'm done reporting to an office ever again. If I do anything from now on, it's going to be on, on my own time, at my own terms. And I, I think I owe it to Janet to be able to give her all the time that I have robbed her over the years. So we're going to have fun. I'm not going to do anything for necessity. I'm going to do things to have fun. And what would you say your superpower is? My superpower? Well, I have an unlimited uh, supply of uh, cans of wood pads. <laughs> if, uh, if any issues come up, man, I'm willing to go ahead and pop those things open and just go ahead and get solutions for people. So let's go. Siaclon <laughs> Lopez, thank you so much for your time today. And this was an absolute pleasure and honor to have you on and, and uh, keep leading the way, sir. Well, thank you so much for the opportunity. Again, it's really an honor to be here with you today. And uh, this was, in fact, a lot of fun. Thank you, Siak. All right, thank you. Thank you again for listening to Tesseract Podcast. Make sure you follow us on Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, and connect with us on LinkedIn. Any references to trademarked, copyrighted, or protected products or services such as books, movies, or businesses are used here for the limited purpose of education and professional development of Air Force Airmen. If you have any questions, please contact us at www.tesseract.af.mil.